1: Part Two, Chapter Seven of Gulliver's Travels. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Lizzie Driver. Gulliver's Travels by Jonathan Swift. Part Two A Voyage to Brobdingnag. Chapter Seven The Author's Love of His Country. He makes a proposal of much advantage to the king, which is rejected. The king's great ignorance in politics. The learning of that country very imperfect and confined. The laws and military affairs and parties in the state. Nothing but an extreme love of truth could have hindered me from concealing this part of my story. It was in vain to discover my resentments, which were always turned into ridicule, and I was forced to rest with patience, while my noble and beloved country was so injuriously treated. I am as heartily sorry as any of my readers can possibly be that such an occasion was given. But this prince happened to be so curious and inquisitive upon every particular, that it could not consist either with gratitude or good manners to refuse giving him what satisfaction I was able. Yet, thus much I may be allowed to say in my own vindication, that I artfully eluded many of his questions, and gave to every point a more favourable turn, by many degrees, than the strictness of truth would allow. For I have always borne that laudable partiality to my own country, which Dionysus Halicarnassus, with so much justice, recommends to an historian, i would hide the frailties and deformities of my political mother and place her virtues and beauties in the most advantageous light this was my sincere endeavor in those many discourses i had with that monarch although it unfortunately failed of success but great allowances should be given to a king who lives wholly secluded from the rest of the world and must therefore be altogether unacquainted WITH THE MANNERS AND CUSTOMS THAT MOST PREVAIL IN OTHER NATIONS, THE WANT OF WHICH KNOWLEDGE WILL EVER PRODUCE MANY prejudices, AND A CERTAIN NARROWNESS OF THINKING, FOR WHICH WE, AND THE POLITER COUNTRIES OF EUROPE, ARE WHOLLY EXEMPT. AND IT WOULD BE HARD, INDEED, IF SO REMOTE A PRINCE'S NOTIONS, OF VIRTUE AND VICE, WERE TO BE OFFERED AS A STANDARD FOR ALL MANKIND. TO CONFIRM WHAT I HAVE NOW SAID, AND FURTHER TO SHOW THE MISERABLE EFFECTS OF A CONFINED EDUCATION, I SHALL HERE INSERT A PASSAGE, WHICH WILL HARDLY OBTAIN BELIEF. IN HOPES TO INGRATIATE MYSELF FURTHER INTO HIS MAJESTY'S FAVOR, I TOLD HIM OF AN INVENTION DISCOVERED BETWEEN THREE AND FOUR HUNDRED YEARS AGO, TO MAKE A CERTAIN POWDER, INTO A HEAP OF WHICH THE SMALLEST SPARK OF FIRE FALLING would kindle the whole in a moment, although it were as big as a mountain, and make it all fly up in the air together, with a noise and agitation greater than thunder. That a proper quantity of this powder, rammed into a hollow tube of brass or iron, according to its bigness, would drive a ball of iron or lead, with such violence and speed, as nothing was able to sustain its force. THAT THE LARGEST BALLS THUS DISCHARGED WOULD NOT ONLY DESTROY WHOLE RANKS OF AN ARMY AT ONCE, BUT BATTER THE STRONGEST WALLS TO THE GROUND, SINK DOWN SHIPS, WITH A THOUSAND MEN IN EACH, TO THE BOTTOM OF THE SEA, AND WHEN LINKED TOGETHER BY A CHAIN, WOULD CUT THROUGH MASTS AND RIGGING, DIVIDE HUNDREDS OF BODIES IN THE MIDDLE, AND LAY ALL waste BEFORE THEM that we often put this powder into large hollow balls of iron, and discharged them by an engine into some city we were besieging, which would rip up the pavements, tear the houses to pieces, burst and throw splinters on every side, dashing out the brains of all who came near. That I knew the ingredients very well, which were cheap and common, I understood the manner of compounding them, and could direct his workmen how to make those tubes of a size proportional to all other things in his majesty's kingdom and the largest need not be above a hundred feet long twenty or thirty of which tubes charged with the proper quantity of powder and balls would batter down the walls of the strongest town in his dominions in a few hours or destroy the whole metropolis if ever it should pretend to dispute his absolute commands this i humbly offered to his majesty as a small tribute of acknowledgment in turn for so many marks that i had received of his royal favour and protection the king was struck with horror at the description i had given of those terrible engines and the proposal i had made he was amazed how so impotent and grovelling an insect as i these were his expressions, could entertain such inhuman ideas, and in so familiar a manner as to appear wholly unmoved at the scenes of blood and desolation which I had painted as the common effects of those destructive machines. Whereof, he said, some evil genius, enemy to mankind, must have been the first contriver. As for himself, he protested, that although few things delighted him so much as new discoveries in art or in nature, yet he would rather lose half his kingdom than be privy to such a secret, which he commanded me, as I valued my life, never to mention any more. A strange effect of narrow principles and views, that the prince possessed of every quality which procures penetration, love, and esteem of strong parts, great wisdom, and profound learning, endowed with admirable talents, and almost adored by his subjects, should, from a nice, unnecessary scruple, whereof in Europe we can have no conception, let slip an opportunity put into his hands that would have made him absolute master of the lives, the liberties, and the fortunes of his people. Neither do I say this, with the least intention to detract from the many virtues of that excellent king, whose character, I am sensible, will, on this account, be very much lessened in the opinion of an English reader. But I take this defect among them to have risen from their ignorance, by not having hitherto reduced politics into a science, as the more acute wits of Europe have done. For I remember very well, IN A DISCOURSE ONE DAY WITH THE KING, WHEN I HAPPENED TO SAY THAT THERE WERE SEVERAL THOUSAND BOOKS AMONG US WRITTEN UPON THE ART OF GOVERNMENT, IT GAVE HIM, DIRECTLY CONTRARY TO MY INTENTION, A VERY MEAN OPINION OF OUR UNDERSTANDINGS. HE PROFESSED BOTH TO ABOMINATE AND DESPISE ALL MYSTERY, REFINEMENT, AND INTRIGUE, EITHER IN A PRINCE OR A MINISTER. HE COULD NOT TELL WHAT I MEANT BY SECRETS OF STATE. Where an enemy or some rival nation, were not in the case. He confined the knowledge of governing within very narrow bounds, to common sense and reason, to justice and leniency, to the speedy determination of civil and criminal causes, with some other obvious topics, which are not worth considering. And he gave it for his opinion, that whoever could make two ears of corn or two blades of grass to grow upon a spot of ground where only one grew before, would deserve better of mankind, and do more essential service to his country than the whole race of politicians put together. The learning of this people is very defective, consisting only in morality, history, poetry and mathematics, wherein they must be allowed to excel. But the last of these is wholly applied to what may be useful in life, TO THE IMPROVEMENT OF AGRICULTURE AND OR MECHANICAL ARTS, SO THAT, AMONG US, IT WOULD BE LITTLE ESTEEMED. AND AS TO IDEAS, ENTREATIES, ABSTRACTIONS, AND transcendentals, I COULD NEVER DRIVE THE LEAST CONCEPTION INTO THEIR HEADS. NO LAW IN THAT COUNTRY MUST EXCEED IN WORDS THE NUMBER OF LETTERS IN THEIR ALPHABET, WHICH CONSISTS ONLY OF TWO AND TWENTY but indeed few of them extend even to that length they are expressed in the most plain and simple terms wherein those people are not mercurial enough to discover above one interpretation and to write a comment upon any law is a capital crime as to the decision of civil causes or proceedings against criminals their precedents are so few "'that they have little reason to boast of any extraordinary skill in either. "'They have had the art of printing, as well as the Chinese, time out of mind. "'But their libraries are not very large. "'For that of the king, which is reckoned the largest, "'does not amount to above a thousand volumes, "'placed in a gallery of twelve hundred feet long. "'Whence I had liberty to borrow what books I pleased.' THE QUEEN'S JOINER HAD CONTRIVED IN ONE OF Glumdalclitch's CLITCH'S ROOMS, A KIND OF WOODEN MACHINE, FIVE AND TWENTY FEET HIGH, FORMED LIKE A STANDING LADDER. THE STEPS WERE EACH FIFTY FEET LONG. IT WAS INDEED A MOVABLE PAIR OF STAIRS, THE LOWEST END PLACED AT TEN FEET DISTANCE FROM THE WALL OF THE CHAMBER. THE BOOK I HAD A MIND TO READ WAS PUT UP, LEANING AGAINST THE WALL, I first mounted to the upper step of the ladder, and turning my face towards the book, began at the top of the page, and so, walking to the right and left about eight or ten paces, according to the length of the lines, till I had gotten a little below the level of mine eyes, and then ascended gradually till I came to the bottom, after which I mounted again, and began the other page in the same manner, and so turned over the leaf, which i could easily do with both my hands for it was as thick and stiff as a pasteboard and in the largest folios not above eighteen or twenty feet long their style is clear masculine and smooth but not florid for they avoid nothing more than multiplying unnecessary words or using various expressions i have perused many of their books especially those in history and morality Among the rest, I was much diverted with a little old treatise, which always lay in Glumducklitch's bedchamber, and belonged to her governess, a grave elderly gentlewoman, who dwelt in writings of morality and devotion. The book treats of the weakness of humankind, and is in little esteem, except among the women and the vulgar. However— I WAS CURIOUS TO SEE WHAT AN AUTHOR OF THAT COUNTRY COULD SAY UPON SUCH A SUBJECT. THIS WRITER WENT THROUGH ALL THE USUAL TOPICS OF EUROPEAN MORALISTS, SHOWING HOW diminutive, CONTEMPTIBLE, AND HELPLESS AN ANIMAL WAS MAN IN HIS OWN NATURE, HOW UNABLE TO DEFEND HIMSELF FROM inclemencies OF THE AIR, OR THE FURY OF WILD BEASTS, HOW HE WAS MUCH EXCELLED BY ONE CREATURE IN STRENGTH, BY ANOTHER IN SPEED, by a third in foresight, by a fourth in industry. He added that nature was degenerated in these latter declining ages of the world, and could now produce only small abortive births in comparison of those in ancient times. He said it was very reasonable to think not only that the species of men were originally much larger, but also that there must have been giants in former ages. Which, as it is asserted by history and tradition, so it has been confirmed by huge bones and skulls, casually dug up in several parts of the kingdom, far exceeding the common dwindled race of men in our days. He argued that the very laws of nature absolutely required we should have be been made, in the beginning, of a size more large and robust not so liable to destruction from every little corner, or of a tile falling from a house, or a stone cast from the hand of a boy, or being drowned in a little brook. From this way of reasoning, the author drew several moral applications, useful in the conduct of life, but needless here to repeat. For my own part, I could not avoid reflecting how universally this talent was spread of drawing lectures in morality, or, indeed, rather matter of discontent and repining, from the quarrels we raise with nature. And I believe, upon a strict inquiry, those quarrels might be shown as ill-grounded among us as they are among that people. As to their military affairs, they boast that the king's army consists of a 176,000 foot and 32,000 horse if that may be called an army, which is made up of tradesmen in the several cities, and farmers in the country, whose commanders are only the nobility and gentry, without pay or reward. They are indeed perfect enough in their exercises, and under very good discipline, wherein I saw no great merit. For how should it be otherwise, where every farmer is under the command of his own landlord, and every citizen under that of the principal men in his own city, chosen after the manner of Venice by ballot. I have often seen the militia of L'Arbelgrud drawn out to exercise in a great field near the city of twenty miles square. They were in all not above twenty-five thousand foot and six thousand horse, but it was impossible for me to compute their number, "'considering the space of ground they took up. "'A cavalier, mounted on a large steed, "'might be about ninety feet high. "'I have seen this whole body of horse, "'upon a word of command, "'draw their swords at once and brandish them in the air. "'Imagination can figure nothing so grand, "'so surprising and so astonishing.' It looked as if ten thousand flashes of lightning were darting at the same time from every quarter of the sky. I was curious to know how this prince, to whose dominions there is no access from any other country, came to think of armies, or to teach his people the practice of military discipline. But I was soon informed, both by conversation and reading their histories, for, in the course of many ages, they have been troubled with the same disease, to which the whole race of mankind is subject, the nobility often contending for power, the people for liberty, and the king for absolute dominion. All which, however, happily tempered by the laws of that kingdom, have been sometimes violated by each of the three parties, and have more than once occasioned civil wars. The last whereof was happily put an end to by this prince's grandfather, in a general composition, and the militia, then settled with common consent, has been ever since kept in the strictest duty. End of Part 2 Chapter 7 Part 2 Chapter 8 of Gulliver's Travels This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Lizzie Driver. Gulliver's Travels by Jonathan Swift. Part 2. A Voyage to Brobdingnag. Chapter 8. The King and Queen make a progress to the frontiers. The author attends them. THE MANNER IN WHICH HE LEAVES THE COUNTRY VERY PARTICULARLY RELATED. HE RETURNS TO ENGLAND. I HAD ALWAYS A STRONG IMPULSE THAT I SHOULD SOMETIME RECOVER MY LIBERTY, THOUGH IT WAS IMPOSSIBLE TO CONJECTURE BY WHAT MEANS, OR TO FORM ANY PROJECT WITH THE LEAST HOPE OF SUCCEEDING. THE SHIP IN WHICH I SAILED WAS THE FIRST EVER KNOWN TO BE DRIVEN WITHIN SIGHT OF THAT COAST, AND THE KING HAD GIVEN STRICT ORDERS. "'that if at any time another appeared, "'it should be taken ashore, "'and with all its crew and passengers, "'brought in tumbril to Lorbrilgrud. "'He was strongly bent to get me a woman of my own size, "'by whom I might propagate the breed. "'But I think I should rather have died "'than undergone the disgrace "'of leaving a posterity to be kept in cages, "'like tame canary-birds. "'And perhaps in time... "'sold about the kingdom to persons of quality, for curiosities. "'I was indeed treated with much kindness. "'I was the favourite of a great king and queen, "'and the delight of the whole court. "'But it was upon such a foot as ill became the dignity of humankind. "'I could never forget those domestic pledges I had left behind me. "'I wanted to be among people, "'with whom I could converse upon even terms.' and to walk about the streets and fields without being afraid or being trod to death, like a frog or a young puppy. But my deliverance came sooner than I expected, and in a manner not very common, the whole story and circumstances of which I shall faithfully relate. I had now been two years in this country, and about the beginning of the third, Glumdar and I attended the king and queen, in a progress to the south coast of the kingdom. I was carried, as usual, in my travelling-box, which, as I have already described, was a very convenient closet of twelve feet wide. And I had ordered a hammock to be fixed by silken ropes from the four corners at the top, to break the jolts when a servant carried me before him on horseback, as I sometimes desired, and would often sleep in my hammock, while we were upon the road. On the roof of my closet, not directly over the middle of the hammock, I ordered the joiner to cut out a hole of a foot square, to give me air in hot weather, as I slept, which hole I shut at pleasure, with a board that drew backward and forward through a groove. When we came to our journey's end, the king thought proper to pass a few days at a palace he has, near Flanflasnyk, a city within eighteen English miles of the seaside. Glumdalclitch and I were much fatigued. I had gotten a small cold, but the poor girl was so ill as to be confined to her chamber. I longed to see the ocean, which must be the only scene of my escape, if ever it should happen. I pretended to be worse than I really was, and desired leave to take the fresh air off the sea with a page whom I was very fond of, and who had sometimes been trusted with me. I shall never forget with what unwillingness Glumdalclitch consented, nor the strict charge she gave the page to be careful of me, bursting at the same time into a flood of tears, as if she had some foreboding of what was to happen. The boy took me out in my box, about half an hour's walk from the palace, "'towards the rocky seashore. "'I ordered him to set me down, "'and lifting up one of my sashes, "'cast many a wistful, melancholy look towards the sea. "'I found myself not very well, "'and told the page that I had a mind to take a nap in my hammock, "'which I hoped would do me some good. "'I got in, and the boy shut the window close down, "'to keep out the cold.' I soon fell asleep, and all I can conjecture is, while I slept, the page, thinking no danger could happen, went among the rocks to look for birds' eggs, having before observed him from my window, searching about and picking up one or two in the clefts. Be that as it will, I found myself suddenly awaked with a violent pull upon the ring, which was fastened at the top of my box. "'for the conveniency of carriage. "'I felt my box rise very high in the air, "'and then borne forward with prodigious speed. "'The first jolt had like to have shaken me out of my hammock, "'but afterwards the motion was easy enough. "'I called out several times, as loud as I could raise my voice, "'but all to no purpose. "'I looked towards my windows, "'and could see nothing but the clouds and sky.' I heard a noise just over my head, like the clapping of wings, and then began to perceive the woeful condition I was in, that some eagle had got the ring of my box in his beak, with an intent to let it fall on a rock, like a tortoise in a shell, and then pick out my body and devour it, for the sagacity and smell of this bird enables him to discover his quarry at a great distance. "'though better concealed than I could be within a two-inch board. "'In a little time I observed the noise and flutter of wings "'to increase very fast, "'and my box was tossed up and down like a sign in a windy day. "'I heard several bangs or buffets, "'as I thought given to the eagle, "'for such I am certain it must have been "'that held the ring of my box in his beak. "'And then, all on a sudden, felt myself falling perpendicularly down for above a minute, but with such incredible swiftness that I almost lost my breath. My fall was stopped by a terrible squash that sounded louder to my ears than the cataract of Niagara, after which I was quite in the dark for another minute, and then my box began to rise so high that I could see light from the tops of the windows. I now perceived I was fallen into the sea. My box being the weight of my body, the goods that were in it, and the broad plates of iron fixed for strength at the four corners of the top and the bottom, floated about five feet deep in water. I did then, and do now suppose, that the eagle which flew away with my box was pursued by two or three others, and forced to let me drop while he defended himself against the rest, who hoped to share in the prey. The plates of iron fastened at the bottom of the box, for those were the strongest, preserved the balance while it fell, and hindered it from being broken on the surface of the water. Every joint of it was well grooved, and the door did not move on hinges, but up and down like a sash, which kept my closet so tight that very little water came in. I got with much difficulty out of my hammock, having first ventured to draw back the slipboard on the roof already mentioned, contrived on purpose to let air in, for want of which I found myself almost stifled. How often did I then wish myself with my dear Glumdalclitch, for whom one single hour had so far divided me and I may say with truth, that in the midst of my own misfortunes, I could not forbear lamenting my poor nurse, the grief she would suffer for my loss, the displeasure of the queen, and the ruin of her fortune. Perhaps many travellers have not been under greater difficulties and distress than I was at this juncture, expecting every moment to see my box dashed to pieces, or at least overset by the first violent blast or rising wave. A breach in one single pane of glass would have been immediate death. Nor could anything have preserved the windows, but the strong lattice wires placed on the outside against accidents in travelling. I saw the water ooze in at several crannies, although the leaks were not considerable. "'and I endeavoured to stop them as well as I could. "'I was not able to lift up the roof of my closet, "'which otherwise I certainly should have done, "'and sat on top of it, "'where I might at least preserve myself some hours longer, than by being shut up, as I may call it, in the hold. "'Or, if I escaped these dangers for a day or two, "'what could I expect but a miserable death of cold and hunger?' I was four hours under these circumstances, expecting, and indeed wishing, every moment to be my last. I have already told the reader that there were two strong staples, fixed upon that side of my box, which had no window, and into which the servant, who used to carry me on horseback, would put a leathern belt and buckle it about his waist. Being in this disconsolate state, I heard or at least thought I heard some kind of grating noise on that side of my box where the staples were fixed, and soon after I began to fancy that the box was pulled or towed along the sea, for I now and then felt a sort of tugging which made the waves rise near the tops of my windows, leaving me almost in the dark. This gave me some faint hopes of relief. "'although I was not able to imagine how it could be brought about. "'I ventured to unscrew one of my chairs, "'which were always fastened to the floor, "'and having made a hard shift to screw it down again, "'directly under the slipping board that I had lately opened, "'I mounted on the chair, "'and putting my mouth as near as I could to the hole, "'I cried for help in a loud voice, "'and in all the languages I understood.' I then fastened my handkerchief to a stick I usually carried, and thrusting it up the hole, waved it several times in the air, that if any boat or ship were near, the seaman might conjecture some unhappy mortal to be shut up in the box. I found no effect from all I could do, but plainly perceived my closet to be moved along, and, in the space of an hour or better, that side of the box where the staples were, and had no windows, struck against something that was hard. I apprehended it to be a rock, and found myself tossed more than ever. I plainly heard a noise upon the cover of my closet, like that of a cable, and the grating of it as it passed through the ring. I then found myself hoisted up, by degrees, at least three feet higher than I was before. Whereupon I again thrust up my stick and handkerchief, calling for help till I was almost hoarse. In return to which, I heard a great shout repeated three times, giving me such transports of joy as are not to be conceived, but by those who feel them. I now heard a trampling over my head, and somebody calling through the hole with a loud voice, in the English tongue, if there be anybody below, let them speak. I answered, I was an Englishman, drawn by ill fortune into the greatest calamity that any creature underwent, and begged, by all that was moving, to be delivered out of this dungeon I was in. The voice replied, I was safe, for my box was fastened to their ship, and the carpenter should immediately come and saw a hole in the cover, large enough to pull me out. I answered that was needless, and would take up too much time, for there was no more to be done. For there was no more to be done but to let one of the crew put his finger into the ring, and take the box out of the sea into the ship, and so into the captain's cabin. Some of them, upon hearing me talk so wildly, thought I was mad. Others laughed, for indeed it never came into my head, THAT I WAS NOW GOT AMONG PEOPLE OF MY OWN STATURE AND STRENGTH. THE CARPENTER CAME, AND IN A FEW MINUTES SAWED A PASSAGE ABOUT FOUR FEET SQUARE, THEN LET DOWN A SMALL LADDER, UPON WHICH I MOUNTED, AND THENCE WAS TAKEN INTO THE SHIP IN A VERY WEAK CONDITION. THE sailors WERE ALL IN AMAZEMENT, AND ASKED ME A THOUSAND QUESTIONS, WHICH I HAD NO INCLINATION TO ANSWER. I WAS EQUALLY CONFOUNDED AT THE SIGHT OF SO MANY PIGMIES, FOR SUCH I TOOK THEM TO BE, AFTER HAVING SO LONG ACCUSTOMED MINE EYES TO THE MONSTROUS OBJECTS I HAD LEFT. BUT THE CAPTAIN, MR. THOMAS WILCOX, AN HONEST, WORTHY SHOPSHIRE MAN, OBSERVING I WAS READY TO FAINT, TOOK ME INTO HIS CABIN, GAVE ME A CORDIAL TO COMFORT ME, AND MADE ME TURN IN UPON HIS OWN BED, advising me to take a little rest of which i had great need before i went to sleep i gave him to understand that i had some valuable furniture in my box too good to be lost a fine hammock a handsome field-bed two chairs a table and a cabinet that my closet was hung on all sides or rather quilted with silk and cotton "'that if he would let one of the crew bring my closet into his cabin, "'I would open it there before him and show him my goods. "'The captain, hearing me utter these absurdities, "'concluded I was raving. "'However, I supposed to pacify me, "'he promised to give order as I desired, "'and going upon deck, sent some of his men down into my closet, "'whence, as I afterwards found... They drew up all my goods, and stripped off the quilting. But the chairs, cabinet, and bedstand, being screwed to the floor, were much damaged by the ignorance of the seamen who tore them up by force. Then they knocked off some of the boards for the use of the ship, and when they had got all they had mined for, let the hull drop into the sea, which, by reason of many breaches, made in the bottom and sides, sunk to rights and indeed I was glad not to have been a spectator of the havoc they made, because I am confident it would have sensibly touched me, by bringing former passages into my mind, which I would rather have forgot. I slept some hours, but perpetually disturbed with dreams of the place I had left, and the dangers I had escaped. However, upon waking, "'I found myself much recovered. "'It was now about eight o'clock at night, "'and the captain ordered supper immediately, "'thinking I had already fasted too long. "'He entertained me with great kindness, "'observing me not to look wildly or talk inconsistently, "'and, when we were left alone, "'desired I would give him a relation of my travels, "'and by what accident I came to be set adrift "'in that monstrous wooden chest.' He said that about twelve o'clock at noon, as he was looking through his glass, he spied it at a distance and thought it was a sail, which he had a mind to make, being not much out of his course, in hopes of buying some biscuit, his own beginning to fall short. That upon coming nearer and finding his error, he sent out his long boat to discover what it was. THAT HIS MEN CAME BACK IN A FRIGHT, SWEARING THEY HAD SEEN A SWIMMING HOUSE. THAT HE LAUGHED AT THEIR folly, AND WENT HIMSELF IN THE BOAT, ORDERING HIS MEN TO TAKE A STRONG CABLE ALONG WITH THEM. THAT THE WEATHER BEING CALM, HE RODE ROUND ME SEVERAL TIMES, OBSERVING MY WINDOWS AND WIRE LATTICES THAT DEFENDED THEM. THAT HE DISCOVERED TWO STAPLES UPON ONE SIDE, WHICH WAS OF ALL BOARDS, WITHOUT ANY PASSAGE FOR LIGHT. He then commanded his men to row up to that side, and fastening a cable to one of the staples, ordered them to tow my chest, as they called it, towards the ship. When it was there, he gave directions to fasten another cable to the ring fixed in the cover, and to raise up my chest with pulleys, which all the sailors were not able to do above three or four feet. He said they saw my stick and handkerchief thrust out of the hole. AND CONCLUDED THAT SOME UNHAPPY MAN MUST BE SHUT UP IN THE CAVITY. I ASKED WHETHER HE OR THE CREW HAD SEEN ANY prodigious BIRDS IN THE AIR ABOUT THE TIME HE FIRST DISCOVERED ME, TO WHICH HE ANSWERED, THAT DISCOURSING THIS MATTER WITH THE sailors WHILE I WAS ASLEEP, ONE OF THEM SAID HE HAD OBSERVED THREE EAGLES FLYING TOWARDS THE NORTH, BUT REMARKED NOTHING OF THEIR BEING LARGER THAN THE USUAL SIZE. "'which, I suppose, must be imputed to the great heights they were at, "'and he could not guess the reason of my inquestion. "'I then asked the captain how far he reckoned we might be from land. "'He said, by the best computation he could make, "'we were at least a hundred leagues. "'I assured him that he must be mistaken by almost half, "'for I had not left the country whence I had come "'above two hours before I dropped into the sea.' whereupon he began again to think that my brain was disturbed, of which he gave me a hint, and advised me to go to bed in a cabin he had provided. I assured him I was well refreshed with his good entertainment and company, and as much in my senses as ever I was in my life. He then grew serious, and desired to ask me freely whether I were not troubled in my mind by the consciousness of some enormous crime, for which I was punished, at the command of some prince, by exposing me in that chest, as great criminals, in other countries, have been forced to see in a leaky vessel, without provisions. For, although he should be sorry to have taken so ill a man into his ship, yet he would engage his word to set me safe ashore, in the first port where we arrived. He added, that his suspicions were much increased by some very absurd speeches I had delivered at first to his sailors, and afterwards to himself, in relation to my closet or chest, as well as by my odd looks and behaviour while I was at supper. I begged his patience to hear me tell my story, which I faithfully did, from the last time I left England to the moment he first discovered me and as truth always forces its way into rational minds so this honest worthy gentleman who had some tincture of learning and very good sense was immediately convinced with my candour and veracity but further to confirm all i had said i entreated him to give order that my cabinet should be brought of which i had the key in my pocket for he had already informed me how the seaman disposed of my closet I opened it in his own presence, and showed him the small collection of rarities I made in the country, from which I had been so strangely delivered. There was the comb I had contrived out of the stumps of the king's beard, and another of the same materials, but fixed into a pairing of Her Majesty's thumbnail, which served for the back. There was a collection of needles and pins, from a foot to half a yard long, Four wasp-stings, like joiner's tacks, "'some combings of the queen's hair, "'a gold ring, which one day she made me a present of, "'in a most obliging manner, "'taking it from her little finger, "'and throwing it over my head like a collar. "'I desired the captain would please to accept this ring, "'in return for his civilities, "'which he absolutely refused.' I showed him a corn that I had cut off with my own hand, from a maid of honour's toe. It was about the bigness of a Kentish Pippin, and grown so hard, that when I returned to England, I got it hollowed into a cup, and set in silver. Lastly, I desired him to see the breeches I had then on, which were made of a mouse's skin. I could force nothing on him but a footman's tooth, "'which I observed him to examine with great curiosity, "'and found he had a fancy for it. "'He received it with abundance of thanks, "'more than such a trifle could deserve. "'It was drawn by an unskilful surgeon, in a mistake, "'from one of Glomdale-Clitch's men, "'who was afflicted with the toothache, "'but it was as sound as any in his head. "'I got it cleaned and put it into my cabinet.' "'It was about a foot long, and four inches in diameter. "'The captain was well satisfied with this plain relation I had given him, "'and said, he hoped, when we returned to England, "'I would oblige the world by putting it on paper and making it public. "'My answer was that we were overstocked with books of travels, "'that nothing could now pass which was not extraordinary.' WHEREIN I DOUBTED SOME AUTHORS LESS CONSULTED TRUTH THAN THEIR OWN VANITY OR INTEREST, OR THE DIVERSION OF IGNORANT READERS. THAT MY STORY COULD CONTAIN LITTLE BESIDE COMMON EVENTS, WITHOUT THOSE ORNAMENTAL DESCRIPTIONS OF STRANGE PLANTS, TREES, BIRDS AND OTHER ANIMALS, OR OF THE barbarous CUSTOMS AND IDOLATRY OF SAVAGE PEOPLE, WITH WHICH MOST WRITERS ABOUND. However, I thanked him for his good opinion, and promised to take the matter into my thoughts. He said he wondered at one thing very much, which was to hear me speak so loud, asking me whether the king or queen of that country were thick of hearing. I told him. It was what I had been used to for above two years past, and that I admired as much at the voices of him and his men, "'who seemed to me only to whisper. "'And yet I could hear them well enough. "'But when I spoke in that country, "'it was like a man talking in the streets "'to another looking out from the top of a steeple, "'unless when I was placed on a table, "'or held in any person's hand. "'I told him I had likewise observed another thing, "'that when I first got into the ship, "'and the sailors all stood about me, "'I thought... "'they were the most little, contemptible creatures I had ever beheld. "'For, indeed, while I was in that prince's country, "'I could never endure to look in a glass, "'after mine eyes had become accustomed to such prodigious objects, "'because the comparison gave me so despicable a conceit of myself. "'The captain said that while we were at supper "'he observed me to look at everything with a sort of wonder.' And that I often seemed hardly able to contain my laughter, which he knew not well how to take, but imputed it to some disorder in my brain. I answered, it was very true, and I wondered how I could forbear when I saw his dishes of the size of a silver threepence, a leg of pork hardly a mouthful, a cup not so big as a nutshell, and so I went on describing the rest of his household stuff and provisions after the same manner. For, although the Queen had ordered a little equipage of all things necessary for me, while I was in her service, yet my ideas were wholly taken up with what I saw on every side of me, and I winked at my own littleness, as people do at their own faults. The captain understood my raillery very well, and merrily replied with the old English proverb that he doubted mine eyes were bigger than my belly, for he did not observe my stomach so good, although I had fasted all day. And, continuing in his mirth, protested he would have gladly given a hundred pounds to have seen my closet in the eagle's bill, and afterwards in its fall from so great a height into the sea which would certainly have been a most astonishing object, worthy to have the description of it transmitted to future ages. And the comparison of Phaeton was so obvious that he could not forbear applying it, although I did not much admire the conceit. The captain, having been at Tonquin, was, in his return to England, driven north-eastward to the latitude of forty-four degrees, a longitude of a hundred and forty-three. But, meeting a trade wind two days after I came on board, We sailed southward a long time, And coasting New Holland, Kept our course west-south-west, And then south-south-west, Till we doubled the Cape of Good Hope. Our voyage was very prosperous, But I shall not trouble the reader with a journal of it, the captain called in at one or two ports, and sent in his long boat for provisions and fresh water. But I never went out of the ship till we came into the Downs, which was on the third day of June, 1706, about nine months after my escape. I offered to leave my goods in security for payment of my freight. But the captain protested he would not receive one farthing, WE TOOK A KIND OF LEAVE OF EACH OTHER, AND I MADE HIM PROMISE HE WOULD COME TO SEE ME AT MY HOUSE IN Redriff. I HIRED A HORSE AND GUIDE FOR FIVE SHILLINGS, WHICH I BORROWED OFF THE CAPTAIN. AS I WAS ON THE ROAD, OBSERVING THE LITTLENESS OF THE HOUSES, THE TREES, THE CATTLE AND THE PEOPLE, I BEGAN TO THINK MYSELF IN LILLIPUT. I WAS AFRAID OF TRAMPLING ON EVERY TRAVELER I MET, and often called aloud to have them stand out of the way, so that I had like to have gotten one or two broken heads from my impertinence. When I came to my house, for which I was forced to inquire, one of the servants opening the door, I bent down to go in, like a goose under a gate, for fear of striking my head. My wife ran out to embrace me, but I stooped lower than her knees, "'thinking she could otherwise never be able to reach my mouth. "'My daughter kneeled to ask my blessing, "'but I could not see her till she arose, "'having been so long used to stand with my head "'and my eyes erect to above sixty feet. "'And then I went to take her up with one hand by the waist. "'I looked down upon the servants, "'and one or two friends who were in the house, "'as if they had been pygmies and I a giant.' I told my wife she had been too thrifty, for I found she had starved herself and her daughter to nothing. In short, I behaved myself so unaccountably that they were all of the captain's opinion when he first saw me, and concluded I had lost my wits. This I mention as an instance of the great power of habit and prejudice. In a little time, I and my family and friends came to a right understanding. But my wife protested I should never go to sea any more, although my evil destiny so ordered that she had not power to hinder me, as the reader may know hereafter. In the meantime, I here conclude the second part of my unfortunate voyages. End of Part 2 Chapter 8 Part 3, Chapter 1 of Gulliver's Travels. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Lizzie Driver. Gulliver's Travels by Jonathan Swift. Part 3 A Voyage to Laputa, Balnibarbi, Lugnug, Glubdub Drib, and Japan. Chapter 1 the author sets out on his third voyage, is taken by pirates, the malice of a Dutchman, his arrival at an island, he is received into Laputa. I had not been at home above ten days when Captain William Robinson, a Cornish man, commander of the Hopewell, a stout ship of three hundred tons, came to my house. I had formerly been surgeon of another ship where he was master. "'and a fourth-part owner, "'in voyage to the Levant. "'He had always treated me like a brother, "'than an inferior officer, "'and, hearing of my arrival, "'made me a visit, "'as I apprehended only out of friendship, "'for nothing passed more than what is usual "'after long absences. "'But, repeating his visits often, "'expressing his joy to find me in good health, "'asking, "'whether I were now settled for life, "'adding, that he intended a voyage to the east indies in two months at last he plainly invited me though with some apologies to be surgeon of the ship that i should have another surgeon under me besides our two mates that my salary should be double to the usual pay and that having experienced my knowledge in sea affairs to be at least equal to his he would enter into any engagement to follow my advice as much as if i had shared in the command he said so many other obliging things, and I knew him to be so honest a man, that I could not reject this proposal. The thirst I had of seeing the world, notwithstanding my past misfortunes, continuing as violent as ever. The only difficulty that remained was to persuade my wife, whose consent, however, I at last obtained, by the prospect of advantage she proposed to her children. WE SET OUT THE FIFTH DAY OF AUGUST, 1706, AND ARRIVED AT FORT ST. GEORGE, THE 11TH OF APRIL, 1707. WE STAYED THERE THREE WEEKS TO REFRESH OUR CREW, MANY OF WHOM WERE SICK. FROM THENCE WE WENT TO TONQUIN, WHERE THE CAPTAIN RESOLVED TO CONTINUE SOME TIME, BECAUSE MANY OF THE GOODS HE INTENDED TO BUY WERE NOT READY, NOR COULD HE EXPECT TO BE DISPATCHED IN SEVERAL MONTHS. Therefore, in hopes to defray some of the charges he must be at, he brought a sloop, loaded it with several sorts of goods, wherewith the Tonquinese usually trade to the neighbouring islands, and putting fourteen men on board, whereof three were of the country, he appointed me master of the sloop, and gave me power to traffic while he transacted his affairs at Tonquin. We had not sailed above three days, when a great storm arising, we were driven five days to the north northeast, and then to the east, after which we had fair weather, but still with a pretty strong gale from the west. Upon the tenth day we were chased by two pirates, who soon overtook us, for my sloop was so deep laden that she sailed very slow, neither were we in a condition to defend ourselves. We were warded about the same time by both the pirates who entered furiously at the head of their men. But finding us all prostrate upon our faces, for so I gave order, they poignoned us with strong ropes, and setting guard upon us, went to search the sloop. I observed among them a Dutchman, who seemed to be of some authority, though he was not commander of either ship. He knew us by our countenance to be Englishmen, and, jabbering to us in his own language, swore we should be tied back to back and thrown into the sea. I spoke in Dutch tolerably well. I told him who we were, and begged him, in consideration of our being Christians and Protestants, of neighbouring countries in strict alliance, that he would move the captains to take some pity on us. This inflamed his rage, He repeated his threatenings, and, turning to his companions, spoke with great vehemence in the Japanese language, as I suppose, often using the word Christianos. The largest of the two pirate ships was commanded by a Japanese captain, who spoke a little Dutch, but very imperfectly. He came up to me, and after several questions, which I answered in great humility, he said, "'we should not die.' "'I made the captain a very low bow, "'and then, turning to the Dutchman, said, "'I was sorry to find more mercy in a heathen "'than in a brother Christian.' "'But I had soon reason to repent those foolish words, "'for that malicious reprobate, "'having often endeavoured, in vain, "'to persuade both the captains "'that I might be thrown into the sea,' which they would not yield to after they promise they made me that I should not die, however, prevailed so far as to have a punishment inflicted on me, worse in all human appearance, than death itself. My men were sent by equal division into both the pirate ships, and my sloop new manned. As to myself, it was determined that I should be set adrift in a small canoe, with paddles and a sail, and four days' provisions, which last the Japanese captain was so kind to double out of his own stores, and would permit no man to search me. I got down into the canoe, while the Dutchman, standing upon the deck, loaded me with all the curses and injurious terms his language could afford. About an hour before we saw the pirates, I had taken an observation— AND FOUND WE WERE IN THE LATITUDE OF 46 NORTH, AND LONGITUDE OF 183. WHEN I WAS AT SOME DISTANCE FROM THE PIRATES, I DISCOVERED, BY MY POCKET GLASS, SEVERAL ISLANDS TO THE SOUTHEAST. I SET UP MY SAIL, THE WIND BEING FAIR, WITH A DESIGN TO REACH THE NEAREST OF THOSE ISLANDS, WHICH I MADE A SHIFT TO DO IN ABOUT THREE HOURS. IT WAS ALL ROCKY, However, I got many birds' eggs, and, striking fire, I kindled some heath and dry seaweed, by which I roasted my eggs. I ate no other supper, being resolved to spare my provisions as much as I could. I passed the night under the shelter of a rock, strewing some heath under me, and slept pretty well. The next day I sailed to another island, and thence to a third and fourth, "'sometimes using my sail, and sometimes my paddles. "'But, not to trouble the reader with a particular account of my distresses, "'let it suffice that on the fifth day I arrived at the last island in my sight, "'which lay south-southeast to the former. "'This island was at a greater distance than I expected, "'and I did not reach it in less than five hours. "'I encompassed it almost round.' "'before I could find a convenient place to land in. "'Which was a small creek, "'about three times the wideness of my canoe. "'I found the island to be all rocky, "'only a little intermingled with tufts of grass "'and sweet-smelling herbs. "'I took out my small provisions, "'and after having refreshed myself, "'I secured the remainder in a cave, "'whereof there were great numbers.' I GATHERED PLENTY OF EGGS UPON THE ROCKS, AND GOT A QUANTITY OF DRY SEAWEED, AND PARCHED GRASS, WHICH I DESIGNED TO KINDLE THE NEXT DAY, AND ROAST MY EGGS AS WELL AS I COULD, FOR I HAD ABOUT ME MY FLINT, STEEL, MATCH, AND BURNING-GLASS. I LAY ALL NIGHT IN THE CAVE, WHERE I HAD LODGED MY PROVISIONS. MY BED WAS THE SAME DRY GRASS AND SEAWEED, WHICH I INTENDED FOR FUEL. I slept VERY LITTLE. FOR THE DISQUIETS OF MY MIND PREVAILED OVER MY WEARINESS, AND KEPT ME AWAKE. I CONSIDERED HOW IMPOSSIBLE IT WAS TO PRESERVE MY LIFE IN SO DESOLATE A PLACE, AND HOW MISERABLE MY END MUST BE. YET FOUND MYSELF SO LISTLESS AND desponding THAT I HAD NOT THE HEART TO RISE. AND, BEFORE I COULD GET SPIRITS ENOUGH TO CREEP OUT OF MY CAVE, THE DAY WAS FAR ADVANCED i walked a while among the rocks the sky was perfectly clear and the sun so hot that i was forced to turn my face from it when all on a sudden it became obscure as i thought in a manner very different from what happens by the interposition of a cloud i turned back and perceived a vast opaque body between me and the sun moving forwards towards the island It seemed to be about two miles high, and hid the sun six or seven minutes. But I did not observe the air to be much colder, or the sky more darkened, than if I had stood under the shade of a mountain. As it approached nearer over the place where I was, it appeared to be a firm substance, the bottom flat, smooth, and shining very bright, from the reflection of the sea below. I stood upon a height about two hundred yards from the shore, and saw this vast body descending almost to be parallel with me, at less than an English mile distance. I took out my pocket perspective, and could plainly discover numbers of people moving up and down the sides of it, which appeared to be sloping. But what those people were doing I was not able to distinguish the natural love of life gave me some inward motion of joy, and I was ready to entertain a hope that this adventure might, somewhere or other, help to deliver me from the desolate place and condition I was in. But at the same time the reader can hardly conceive my astonishment to behold an island in the air, inhabited by men, who were able, as it should seem, to raise or sink or put it into progressive motion, as they pleased. But, not being at that time in a disposition to philosophise upon this phenomenon, I rather chose to observe what course the island would take, because it seemed for a while to stand still. Yet, soon after, it advanced nearer, and I could see the sides of it encompassed with several gradations of galleries, and stairs at certain intervals, "'to descend from one to the other. "'In the lowest gallery I beheld some people fishing "'with long, angling rods, and others looking on. "'I waved my cap, for my hat was long since worn out, "'and my handkerchief towards the island, "'and upon its nearer approach I called and shouted "'with the utmost strength of my voice. "'And then, looking circumspectly, I beheld a crowd gather to that side which was most in my view. I found, by their pointing towards me and to each other, that they plainly discovered me, although they made no return to my shouting. But I could see four or five men running in great haste up the stairs to the top of the island, who then disappeared. I happened rightly to conjecture "'that these were sent for orders to some person in authority upon this occasion. "'The number of people increased, and, in less than half an hour, "'the island was moved and raised in such a manner "'that the lowest gallery appeared in a parallel of less than a hundred yards' distance "'from the height of where I stood. "'I then put myself in the most supplicating posture, "'and spoke in the humblest accent.' "'but received no answer. "'Those who stood nearest over against me "'seemed to be persons of distinction, "'as I supposed by their habit. "'They conferred earnestly with each other, "'looking often upon me. "'At length one of them called out "'in a clear, polite, smooth dialect, "'not unlike in sound to the Italian, "'and therefore I returned an answer in that language, "'hoping at least... "'that the cadence might be more agreeable to his ears. "'Although neither of us understood the other, "'yet my meaning was easily known, "'for the people saw the distress I was in. "'They made signs for me to come down from the rock "'and go towards the shore, which I accordingly did. "'And the flying island, being raised to a convenient height, "'the verge directly over me, "'a chain was let down from the lowest gallery.' With a seat fastened to the bottom, to which I fixed myself, and was drawn up by pulleys. End of part three, chapter one. Part three, chapter two of Gulliver's Travels. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Lizzie Driver. Gulliver's Travels by Jonathan Swift Part Three A Voyage to Laputa, Balnibarbi, Lugnag, Drib, and Japan Chapter Two The Humours and Dispositions of the Laputians Described An account of their learning, of the king and his court, the author's reception there, the inhabitants subject to fear and disquietudes, an account of the women, At my alighting I was surrounded with a crowd of people. But those who stood nearest seemed to be of better quality. They beheld me with all the marks and circumstances of wonder. Neither, indeed, was I much in their debt, having never till then seen a race of mortals so singular in their shapes, habits, and countenances. Their heads were all reclined, either to the right or the left. One of their eyes turned inward, "'and the other directly up to the zenith. "'Their outward garments were adorned "'with the figures of suns, moons, and stars, "'interwoven with those of fiddles, flutes, harps, "'trumpets, guitars, harpsichords, "'and many other musical instruments "'unknown to us in Europe. "'I observed, here and there, "'many in the habit of servants, "'with a brown bladder, "'fastened like a flail to the end of a stick.' "'which they carried in their hands. "'In each bladder was a small quantity of dried peas, "'or little pebbles, as I was afterwards informed. "'With these bladders they now and then "'flat the mouths and ears of those who stood near them, "'of which practice I could not then conceive the meaning. "'It seems the mind of these people "'are so taken up with the intense speculations "'that they can neither speak "'nor attend to the discourses of others.' without being roused by some external taxion upon the organs of speech and hearing for which reason those persons who are able to afford it always keep a flapper the original is climnol in their family as one of their domestics nor ever walk abroad or make visits without him and the business of this officer is when two three or more persons are in company gently to strike with his bladder the mouth of him who is to speak, and the right ear of him or them to whom the speaker addresses himself. This flapper is likewise employed diligently to attend his master in his walks, and upon occasion to give him a soft flap on his eyes, because he is always so wrapped up in cogitation that he is in manifest danger of falling down every precipice and bouncing his head against every post and in the streets, of jostling others, or being jostled himself into the kennel. It was necessary to give the reader this information, without which he would be at the same loss with me to understand the proceedings of these people, as they conducted me stairs to the top of the island, and from thence to the royal palace. While we were ascending, they forgot several times what they were about— and left me to myself, till their memories were again roused by their flappers, for they appeared altogether unmoved by the sight of my foreign habit and countenance, and by the shouts of the vulgar, whose thoughts and minds were more disengaged. At last we entered the palace, and proceeded into the chamber of presence, where I saw the king seated on his throne, attended on each side by persons of prime quality. Before the throne was a large table filled with globes and spheres, and mathematical instruments of all kinds. His Majesty took not the least notice of us, although our entrance was not without sufficient noise, by the concourse of all persons belonging to the court. But he was then deep in a problem, and we attended at least an hour before he could solve it. There stood by him, on each side, a young page with flaps in their hands, and when they saw he was at leisure, one of them gently struck his mouth, and the other his right ear. At which he started like one awaked on the sudden, and looking towards me and the company I was in, recollected the occasion of our coming, whereof he had been informed before. He spoke some words. "'whereupon immediately a young man with a flap came up to my side, "'and flapped me gently on the right ear. "'But I made signs, as well as I could, "'that I had no occasion for such an instrument, "'which, as I afterwards found, "'gave His Majesty and the whole court "'a very mean opinion of my understanding. "'The King, as far as I could conjecture, "'asked me several questions.' and i addressed myself to him in all the languages i had when it was found i could neither understand nor be understood i was conducted by his order to an apartment in his palace this prince being distinguished above all his predecessors for his hospitality to strangers where two servants were appointed to attend me my dinner was brought and four persons of quality whom i remember to have seen very near the king's person did me the honour to dine with me we had two courses of three dishes each in the first course there was a shoulder of mutton cut into an equilateral triangle a piece of beef into a rhomboidus and a pudding into a cycloid the second course was two ducks trussed up in the form of fiddles sausages and puddings resembling flutes and hoboys and a breast of veal in the shape of a harp. The servants cut our bread into cones, cylinders, parallelograms, and several other mathematical figures. After dinner my company withdrew, and a person was sent to me by the king's order, attended by a flapper. He brought with him pen, ink, and paper, and three or four books, giving me to understand by signs, "'that he was sent to teach me the language. "'We sat together four hours, "'in which time I wrote down a great number of words in columns, "'with the translations over against them. "'I likewise made a shift to learn several short sentences. "'For my tutor would order one of my servants to fetch something, "'to turn about, to make a bow, "'to sit, or to stand, or walk, and the like. "'Then I took down the sentence in writing.' HE SHOWED ME ALSO IN ONE OF HIS BOOKS, THE FIGURES OF THE SUN, MOON, AND STARS, THE ZODIAC, THE TROPICS, AND POLAR CIRCLES, TOGETHER WITH THE DENOMINATIONS OF MANY PLANES AND SOLIDS. HE GAVE ME THE NAMES AND DESCRIPTIONS OF ALL THE MUSICAL INSTRUMENTS, AND THE GENERAL TERMS OF ART IN PLAYING ON EACH OF THEM. AFTER HE HAD LEFT ME, I PLACED ALL MY WORDS, WITH THEIR INTERPRETATIONS, IN ALPHABETICAL ORDER. And thus, in a few days, by the help of a very faithful memory, I got some insight into their language. The word, which I interpret the flying or floating island, is in the original Laputa, whereof I could never learn the true entomology. Lap, in the old obsolete language, signifies high, and Anta, a governor, from which they say, by corruption, was derived Laputa from Lapunta, But I do not approve of this derivation, which seems to be a little strained. I ventured to offer to the learned among them a conjecture of my own, that Laputa was quasi-lapouted, lap, signifying property, the dancing of the sunbeams in the sea, and outed, a wing, which, however, I shall not obtrude, but submit to the judicious reader. Those to whom the king had entrusted me, observing how ill I was clad, ordered a tailor to come next morning and take measure for a suit of clothes. The operator did his office after a different manner from those of his trade in Europe. He first took my altitude by a quadrant, and then, with a rule and a compass, described the dimensions and outlines of my whole body all which he entered upon paper, and in six days brought me clothes very ill-made, and quite out of shape, by happening to mistake a figure in the calculation. But my comfort was that I observed such accidents very frequent, and little regarded. During my confinement for want of clothes, and by an indisposition that held me some days longer, I much enlarged my dictionary, and when I went next to court, was able to understand many things the king spoke, and to return him some kind of answers. His Majesty had given orders that the island should move northeast and by east, to a vertical point over Lagado, the metropolis of the whole kingdom below, upon the firm earth. It was about ninety leagues distant, and our voyage lasted four days and a half. I was not in the least sensible of the progressive motion in the air by the island. On the second morning, about eleven o'clock, the king, himself in person, attended by his nobility, courtiers, and officers, having prepared all their musical instrument, played on them for three hours, without intermission, so that I was quite stunned with the noise. Neither could I possibly guess the meaning till my tutor informed me, He said that the people of their island had their ears adapted to hear the music of the spheres, which always played at certain periods, and the court was now prepared to bear their part in whatever instrument they most excelled. In our journey towards Lagado, the capital city, His Majesty ordered that the island should stop over certain towns and villages, from whence he might receive the petitions of his subjects, and to this purpose several pack-threads were let down, with small weights at the bottom. On these pack-threads the people strung their petitions, which mounted up directly like the scraps of paper fastened by schoolboys at the end of the string that holds their kite. Sometimes we received wines and victuals from below, which were drawn up by pulleys. The knowledge I had in mathematics gave me great assistance in acquiring their phraseology, which depended much upon that science, and music, and in the latter I was not unskilled. Their ideas are perpetually conservant in lines and figures. If they would, for example, praise the beauty of a woman, or any other animal, they described it by rhombus, circles, parallelograms, ellipses, and other geometric terms or by words of art drawn from music needless here to repeat i observed in the king's kitchen all sorts of mathematical and musical instruments after the figures of which they cut up the joints that were served to his majesty's table their houses are very ill-built the walls bevel without one right angle in any apartment and this defect arises from the contempt they bear to practical geometry which they despise as vulgar and mechanic. Those instructions they give being too refined for the intellects of their workmen, which occasions perpetual mistakes, and although they are dexterous enough upon a piece of paper, in the management of the rule, the pencil and the divider, yet, in the common actions and behaviour of life, I have not seen a more clumsy, awkward, and unhandy people nor so slow and perplexed in their conceptions upon all other subjects, except those of mathematics and music. They are very bad reasoners, and vehemently given to opposition, unless, when they happen to be of the right opinion, which is seldom their case. Imagination, fancy, and invention, they are wholly strangers to, nor have any words in their language, by which these ideas can be expressed, the whole compass of their thoughts and minds being shut up within the two forementioned sciences. Most of them, and especially those who deal in the astronomical part, have great faith in judicial astrology, although they are ashamed to own it publicly. But what I chiefly admire, and thought altogether unaccountable, was the strong disposition I observed in them towards news and politics. Perpetually inquiring into public affairs, given their judgments in matters of state, and passionately disputing every inch of a party opinion. I have indeed observed the same disposition among most of the mathematicians I have known in Europe, although I could never discover the least analogy between the two sciences, unless those people suppose that because the smallest circle has as many degrees as the largest, therefore the regulation and management of the world require no more abilities than the handling and turning of a globe. But I rather take this quality to spring from a very common infirmity of human nature, inclining us to be most curious and conceited in manners where we have least concern, and from which we are least adapted by study or nature. These people are under continual disquietudes, never enjoying a minute's peace of mind, AND THEIR DISTURBANCES PROCEED FROM CAUSES WHICH VERY LITTLE AFFECT THE REST OF MORTALS. THEIR APPREHENSIONS ARISE FROM SEVERAL CHANGES THEY DREAD IN THE CELESTIAL BODIES. FOR INSTANCE, THAT THE EARTH, BY THE CONTINUAL APPROACHES OF THE SUN TOWARDS IT, MUST, IN COURSE OF TIME, BE ABSORBED OR SWALLOWED UP. THAT THE FACE OF THE SUN WILL, BY DEGREES, BE ENCRUSTED WITH ITS OWN EFFLUVIA, AND GIVE NO MORE LIGHT TO THE WORLD. "'that the earth very narrowly escaped a brush from the tail of the last comet, "'which would have infallibly reduced it to ashes, "'and that the next, which they have calculated for one and thirty years hence, "'will probably destroy us. "'For if, in its preahelion, it should approach within a certain degree of the sun, "'as by their calculations they have reason to dread, "'it will receive a degree of heat ten thousand times more intense than that of a red, hot, glowing iron, and, in its absence from the sun, carry a blazing tail ten hundred thousand and fourteen miles long, through which, if the earth should pass at a distance of one hundred miles from the nucleus, or the main body of the comet, it must in its passage be set on fire, and reduced to ashes, that the sun, daily spending its rays without any nutriment to supply them, will at last be wholly consumed and annihilated, which must be attended with the destruction of this earth and of all the planets that receive their light from it. They are so perpetually alarmed with the apprehensions of these and the like impending dangers, that they can neither sleep quietly in their beds nor have any relish for the common pleasures and amusements of life. When they meet an acquaintance in the morning, the first question is about the sun's health, how he looked at his setting and rising, and what hopes they have to avoid the stroke of the approaching comet. This conversation they are apt to run into with the same temper that boys discover in delighting to hear terrible stories of spirits and hobgoblins, which they greedily listen to and dare not go to bed for fear. The women of the island have abundance of vivacity. They contemn their husbands, and are exceedingly fond of strangers, whereof there is always a considerable number from the continent below, attending at court, either upon affairs of the several towns and corporations, or their own particular occasions, but are much despised, because they want the same endowments. Among these the ladies choose their gallants. But the vexation is, that they act with too much ease and security. For the husband is always so wrapped in speculation, that the mistress and lover may proceed to the greatest familiarities before his face, if he be but provided with paper and implements, and without his flapper at his side. The wives and daughters lament their confinement to the island. Although I think it is the most delicious spot of ground in the world, AND, ALTHOUGH THEY LIVE HERE IN THE GREATEST PLENTY AND MAGNIFICENCE, AND ARE ALLOWED TO DO WHATEVER THEY PLEASE, THEY LONG TO SEE THE WORLD, AND TAKE THE DIVERSIONS OF THE METROPOLIS, WHICH THEY ARE NOT ALLOWED TO DO WITHOUT A PARTICULAR LICENCE FROM THE KING. AND THAT IS NOT EASY TO BE OBTAINED, BECAUSE THE PEOPLE OF QUALITY have FOUND, BY FREQUENT EXPERIENCE, HOW HARD IT IS TO PERSUADE THEIR WOMAN TO RETURN FROM BELOW i was told that a great court lady who had several children is married to the prime minister the richest subject in the kingdom a very graceful person extremely fond of her and lives in the finest palace of the island went down to lagado on the pretence of health there hid herself for several months till the king sent a warrant to search for her and she was found in an obscure eating-house all in rags having pawned her clothes to maintain an old, deformed footman, who beat her every day, and in whose company she was taken much against her will. And although her husband received her with all possible kindness, and without the least reproach, she soon after contrived to steal down again, with all her jewels, to the same gallant, and has not been heard of since. This may perhaps pass with the reader, "'rather for a European or English story "'than for one of a country so remote. "'But he may please to consider "'that the caprices of womankind "'are not limited by any climate or nation, "'and that they are much more uniform "'than can be easily imagined. "'In about a month's time "'I had made a tolerable proficiency in their language, "'was able to answer most of the king's questions "'when I had the honour to attend him. His Majesty discovered not the least curiosity to inquire into the laws, government, history, religion, or manners of the countries where I had been, but confined his questions to the state of mathematics, and received the account I gave him with great contempt and indifference, though often roused by his flapper on each side. End of part 3 Chapter 2 Part 3, Chapter 3 of Gulliver's Travels. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Lizzie Driver. Gulliver's Travels by Jonathan Swift. Part 3 A Voyage to Laputa, Balnibarbi, Lugnag, Glubdub Drib, and Japan. CHAPTER Three, A PHENOMENON SOLVED BY MODERN PHILOSOPHY AND ASTRONOMY THE LAPUTIAN'S GREAT IMPROVEMENTS IN THE LATTER THE KING'S METHOD OF SUPPRESSING INSURRECTIONS I desired leave of this prince to see the curiosities of the island, which he was graciously pleased to grant, and ordered my tutor to attend me. I chiefly wanted to know, to what cause, in art or in nature, it owed its several motions, whereof I will now give a philosophical account to the reader. The Flying or Floating Island is exactly circular, its diameter 7,837 yards, or about four miles and a half, and consequently contains 10,000 acres. It is 300 yards thick. The bottom, or under surface, which appears to those who view it below, is one even regular plate of adamant, shooting up to the height of about two hundred yards. Above it lie the several minerals in their usual order, and over all is a coat of rich mould, ten or twelve feet deep. The declivity of the upper surface, from the circumference to the centre, is the natural cause why all the dews and rains, which fall upon the island, are conveyed in small rivulets towards the middle, where they are emptied into four large basins, each of about half a mile in circuit, and two hundred yards distant from the centre. From these basins the water is continually exhaled by the sun in the daytime, which effectually prevents their overflowing. Besides, as it is in the power of the monarch to raise the island above the rain of clouds and vapours, he can prevent the falling of dews and rain whenever he pleases for the highest clouds cannot rise above two miles, as naturalists agree. At least, they were never known to do so in that country. At the centre of the island, there is a chasm about fifty yards in diameter, whence the astronomers descend into a large dome, which is thereof called Flandona Gagnol, or the Astronomer's Cave. Situated at the depth of a hundred yards beneath the upper surface of the adamant, in this cave are twenty lamps continually burning, which, from the reflection of the adamant, cast a strong light into every part. The place is stored with great variety of sextants, quadrants, telescopes, astrolabs, and other astronomical instruments. But the greatest curiosity, upon which the fate of the island depends, is a lodestone of a prodigious size, in shape resembling a weaver's shuttle. It is in length six yards, and in the thickest part at least three yards over. This magnet is sustained by a very strong axle of adamant, passing through its middle, upon which it plays, and is poised so exactly that the weakest hand can turn it. It is hooped round with a hollow cylinder of adamant, four feet yards in diameter, placed horizontally, and supported by eight adamantine feet, each six yards high. In the middle of the concave side, there is a groove twelve inches deep, in which the extremities of the axle are lodged, and turned round as there is occasion. The stone cannot be removed from its place by any force, because the hoop and its feet are one continued piece with that body of adamant, which constitutes the bottom of the island. By means of this loadstone, the island is made to rise and fall, and move from one place to another. For with respect to that part of the earth over which the monarch presides, the stone is endured at one side of its side with an attractive power, and at the other with a repulsive. Upon placing the magnet erect, with its attracting end towards the earth, the island descends. But when the repelling extremity points downwards, the island bounced directly upwards. When the position of the stone is oblique, the motion of the island is too, for in this magnet the forces always act in lines parallel to its direction. By this oblique motion the island is conveyed to different parts of the monarch's dominions. To explain the manner of its progress, let A.B. represent a line drawn across the dominions of Balna let the line CD represent the loadstone, of which D be the repelling end, and C the attracting end. The island being over capital C, let the stone be placed in position CD, with its repelling end downwards. Then the island will be driven upwards obliquely towards capital D. When it is arrived at capital D, let the stone be turned upon its axle, till the attracting end points towards E. And then the island will be carried obliquely towards E, where, if the stone being again turned upon its axle, till it stands in the position E-F, with its repelling point downwards, the island will rise obliquely towards F, where, by directing the attracting end towards G, the island may be carried to G, and from G to H, by turning the stone so as to make its repelling extremity to point directly downward. And thus, by changing the situation of the stone, as often as there is occasion, the island is made to rise and fall by turns in an oblique direction, and by those alternate risings and fallings, the obliquity being not considerable, is conveyed from one part of the dominions to the other. But it must be observed that this island cannot move beyond the extent of the dominions below, nor can it rise above the height of four miles, for which the astronomers, who have written large systems concerning the stone, assign the following reason that the magnetic virtue does not extend beyond the distance of four miles, and that the mineral, which acts upon the stone in the bowels of the earth, and in the sea about six leagues distance from the shore, is not diffused through the whole globe, but terminated with the limits of the king's dominions. And it was easy, from the great advantage of such a superior situation, for a prince to bring under his obedience whatever country lay within the attraction of that magnet. When the stone is put parallel to the plane of the horizon, the island stands still, for in that case the extremities of it, being at equal distance from the earth, act with equal force the one in drawing downwards the other in pushing upwards and consequently no motion can ensue this lodestone is under the care of certain astronomers who from time to time give it such positions as the monarch directs they spend the greatest part of their lives in observing the celestial bodies which they do by the assistance of glasses far-excelling ours in goodness. For, although their largest telescopes do not exceed three feet, they magnify much more than those of a hundred with us, and show the stars with greater clearness. This advantage has enabled them to extend their discoveries much further than our astronomers in Europe, for they have made a catalogue of ten thousand fixed stars whereas the largest of ours do not contain above one-third part of that number. They have likewise discovered two lesser stars, or satellites, which revolve about Mars, whereof the innermost is distant from the centre of the primary planet exactly three of his diameters, and the outermost five. The former revolves in the space of ten hours, and the latter in twenty-one and a half so that the squares of the periodical times are very near in the same proportion with the cubes of their distance from the centre of Mars, which evidently shows them to be governed by the same law of gravitation that influences the other heavenly bodies. They have observed ninety-three different comets and settled their periods with great exactness. If this be true, and they affirm it with great confidence, it is much to be wished... That their observations were made public, whereby the theory of comets, which at present is very lame and defective, might be brought to the same perfection with other arts of astronomy. The king would be the most absolute prince in the universe, if he could but prevail on a ministry to join with him. But these, having their estates below on the continent, and considering that the office of a favourite has a very uncertain tenure, would never consent to the enslaving of their country. If any town should engage in rebellion or mutiny, fall into violent factions, or refuse to pay the usual tribute, the king has two methods of reducing them to obedience. The first and mildest course is, by keeping the island hovering over such a town and the lands about it, whereby he can deprive them of the benefit of the sun and the rain, and consequently afflict the inhabitants with dearth and disease and if the crime deserve it they are at the same time pelted from above with great stones against which they have no defence but by creeping into cellars or caves while the roofs of their houses are beaten to pieces but if they still continue obstinate or offer to raise insurrections he proceeds to the last remedy by letting the island drop directly upon their heads, which makes a universal destruction both of houses and men. However, this is an extremity to which the prince is seldom driven. Neither, indeed, is he willing to put it in execution, nor dare his ministers advise him to an action, which, as it would render them odious to the people, so it would be a great damage to their own estates, which all lie below, "'for the island is the king's domain, "'But there is still indeed a more weighty reason "'why kings of this country have always been averse "'from executing so terrible an action, "'unless upon the utmost necessity. "'For if the town intended to be destroyed, "'should have in it any tall rocks. "'As it generally falls out in the larger cities, "'a situation probably chosen at first "'with a view to prevent such a catastrophe.' Or, if it abound in high spires or pillars of stone, a sudden fall might endanger the bottom or under surface of the island, which, although it consist, as I have said, of one entire adamant, two hundred yards thick, might happen to crack by too great a shock, or burst by approaching too near the fires from the houses below, as the backs, both of iron and stone, will often do in our chimneys. OF ALL THIS THE PEOPLE ARE WELL APPRAISED, AND UNDERSTAND HOW FAR TO CARRY THEIR obstinacy, WHERE THEIR LIBERTY OR PROPERTY IS CONCERNED. AND THE KING, WHEN HE IS HIGHEST PROVOKED, AND MOST DETERMINED TO PRESS THE CITY TO RUBBISH, ORDERS THE ISLAND TO DESCEND WITH GREAT gentleness, OUT OF A PRETENCE OF TENDERNESS TO HIS PEOPLE, BUT, INDEED, FOR FEAR OF BREAKING THE ADAMANTINE BOTTOM, In which case, it is the opinion of all the philosophers that the lodestone could no longer hold it up, and the whole mass would fall to the ground. By a fundamental law of this realm, neither the king, nor either of his two eldest sons, are permitted to leave the island, nor the queen, till she is past childbearing. End of Part 3 Chapter 3 Part 3, Chapter 4 of Gulliver's Travels. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Lizzie Driver. Gulliver's Travels by Jonathan Swift. Part 3 A Voyage to Laputa, Valnabarbi, Lugnag, Glubdub Drib, and Japan. Chapter Four. The author leaves Laputa, is conveyed to Balnibarbi arrives at the metropolis. A description of the metropolis and the country adjoining the author hospitably received by a great lord. His conversation with that Lord, Although I cannot say that I was ill-treated in this island, yet I must confess I thought myself too much neglected, not without some degree of contempt for neither prince nor people appeared to be curious in any part of knowledge, except mathematics and music, wherein I was far their inferior, and upon that account very little regarded. On the other side, after having seen all the curiosities of the island, I was very desirous to leave it, being heartily weary of those people. They were indeed excellent in two sciences for which I have great esteem, and wherein I am not unversed. "'but, at the same time, so abstracted and involved in speculation, "'that I have never met with such disagreeable companions. "'I conversed only with women, tradesmen, flappers, and court pages, "'during two months of my abode there, "'by which, at least, I rendered myself extremely contemptible. "'Yet these were the only people from whom I could ever receive a reasonable answer.' I had obtained, by hard study, a good degree of knowledge in their language. I was weary of being confined to an island where I received so little countenance, and resolved to leave it with the first opportunity. There was a great lord at court, nearly related to the king, and for that reason alone used with respect. He was, universally reckoned, the most ignorant and stupid person among them, HE HAD PERFORMED MANY EMINENT SERVICES FOR THE CROWN, HAD GREAT NATURAL AND ACQUIRED PARTS, ADORNED WITH INTEGRITY AND HONOUR, BUT SO ILL AN EAR FOR MUSIC, THAT HIS DETRACTORS REPORTED, HE HAD BEEN OFTEN KNOWN TO beat TIME IN THE WRONG PLACE. NEITHER COULD HIS TUTORS, WITHOUT EXTREME DIFFICULTY, TEACH HIM TO DEMONSTRATE THE MOST EASY PROPOSITION IN THE MATHEMATICS. HE WAS PLEASED TO SHOW ME MANY MARKS OF FAVOUR, "'often did me the honour of a visit. "'Desired to be informed in the affairs of Europe, "'the laws and customs, the manners and learning "'of the several countries where I had travelled. "'He listened to me with great attention, "'and made very wise observations on all I spoke. "'He had two flappers attending him for state, "'but never made use of them, "'except at court and in visits of ceremony, "'and would always command them to withdraw "'when we were alone together.' I entreated this illustrious person, to intercede in my behalf with his majesty, for leave to depart. Which he accordingly did, as he was pleased to tell me, with great regret, for indeed he had made me several offers very advantageous, which, however, I refused, with expressions of the highest acknowledgment. On the 16th of February I took leave of his majesty and the court, THE KING MADE ME A PRESENT TO THE VALUE OF ABOUT TWO HUNDRED POUNDS ENGLISH, AND MY PROTECTOR, HIS KINSMAN, AS MUCH MORE, TOGETHER WITH A LETTER OF RECOMMENDATION TO A FRIEND OF HIS IN LAGADO, THE METROPOLIS. THE ISLAND BEING THEN HOVERING OVER A MOUNTAIN ABOUT TWO MILES FROM IT, I WAS LET DOWN FROM THE LOWEST GALLERY, IN THE SAME MANNER I HAD BEEN TAKEN UP. THE CONTINENT, AS FAR AS IT IS SUBJECT TO THE MONARCH OF THE FLYING ISLAND, passes under the general name of Balnebabi, and the metropolis, as I have said before, is called Lagado. I felt some little satisfaction in finding myself on firm ground. I walked to the city without any concern, being clad like one of the natives, and sufficiently instructed to converse with them. I soon found out the person's house to whom I was recommended, "'presented my letter from his friend the grandee in the island, "'and was received with much kindness. "'This great lord, whose name was Minodi, "'ordered me an apartment in his own house, "'where I continued during my stay, "'and was entertained in a most hospitable manner. "'The next morning after my arrival, "'he took me in his chariot to see the town, "'which is about half the bigness of London, "'but the house is very strangely built.' and most of them out of repair the people in the streets walked fast looked wild their eyes fixed and were generally in rags we passed through one of the town gates and went about three miles into the country where i saw many labourers working with several sorts of tools in the ground but was not able to conjecture what they were about neither did observe any expectation either of corn or grass although the soil appeared to be excellent I could not forbear admiring at these odd appearances, both in town and country. And I made bold to desire my conductor, that he would be pleased to explain to me what could be meant by so many busy heads, hands, and faces, both in the streets and the fields, because I did not discover any good effects they produced. But, on the contrary, I never knew a soil so unhappily cultivated, houses so ill-contrived and so ruinous, "'or a people whose countenances and habit "'expressed so much misery and want. "'This Lord Monody was a person of the first rank, "'and had been some years governor of Lagado. "'but by a cable of ministers was discharged for insufficiency. "'However, the king treated him with tenderness "'as a well-meaning man, "'but of a low contemptible understanding.' when i gave that free censure of the country and its inhabitants he made no further answer than by telling me that i had not been long enough among them to form a judgment and that the different nations of the world had different customs with other common topics to the same purpose but when we returned to his palace he asked me how i liked the building what absurdities i observed "'and what quarrel I had with the dress or look of his domestics. "'This he might safely do, "'because everything about him was magnificent, "'regular, and polite. "'I answered that his excellency's prudence, quality, and fortune "'had exempted him from those defects "'which folly and beggary had produced in others. "'He said, if I would go with him to his country-house "'about twenty miles distant, where his estate lay, there would be more leisure for this kind of conversation i told his excellency that i was entirely at his disposal and accordingly we set out next morning during our journey he made me observe the several methods used by farmers in managing their lands which to me were wholly unaccountable for except in some very few places i could not discover one ear of corn or blade of grass But, in three hours travelling, the scene was wholly altered. We came into a most beautiful country, farmers' houses at small distances neatly built, the fields enclosed, containing vineyards, corn-grounds, and meadows. Neither do I remember to have seen a more delightful prospect. His Excellency observed my countenance to cheer up. He told me, with a sigh, that there his estate began, and would continue the same, till we should come to his house, that his countrymen ridiculed and despised him for managing his affairs no better, and for setting so ill an example to the kingdom, which, however, was followed by very few, such as were old and wilful and weak like himself. We came at length to the house, which was indeed a noble structure, built according to the best rules of ancient architecture. The fountains, gardens, walks, avenues, and groves were all disposed with exact judgment and taste. I gave due praises to everything I saw, whereof His Excellency took not the least notice till after supper, when, there being no third companion, he told me with a very melancholy air, THAT HE DOUBTED HE MUST THROW DOWN HIS HOUSES IN TOWN AND COUNTRY, TO REBUILD THEM AFTER THE PRESENT MODE, DESTROY ALL HIS PLANTATIONS, AND CAST OTHERS INTO SUCH A FORM AS MODERN USAGE REQUIRED, AND GIVE THE SAME DIRECTIONS TO ALL HIS TENANTS, UNLESS HE WOULD SUBMIT TO INCUR THE CENSURE OF PRIDE, SINGULARITY, AFFECTATION, IGNORANCE, CAPRICE, AND PERHAPS INCREASE HIS MAJESTY'S DISPLEASURE. "'that the admiration I appeared to be under "'would cease or diminish "'when he had informed me of some particulars "'which, probably, I had never heard of at court, "'the people there being too much taken up "'in their own speculations "'to have regard to what passed here below. "'The sum of his discourse was to this effect, "'that about forty years ago "'certain persons went up to Laputa, "'either upon business or diversion, "'and, after five months' continuance, came back with a very little smattering in mathematics, but full of volatile spirits acquired in that airy region. That these persons, upon their return, began to dislike the management of everything below, and fell into schemes of putting all arts, sciences, languages, and mechanics upon a new foot. To this end they procured a royal patent for erecting an academy of projectors in Legado, and the humour prevailed so strongly among the people, that there is not a town of any consequence in the kingdom without such an academy. In these colleges the professors contrive new rules and methods of agriculture and building, and new instruments and new tools for all trades and manufacturers, whereby, as they undertake, one man shall do the work of ten, a palace may be built in a week, of material so durable as to last for ever without repairing. All the fruits of the earth shall come to maturity at whatever season we think fit to choose, and increase a hundredfold more than they do at present, with innumerable other happy proposals. The only inconvenience is, that none of these projects are yet brought to perfection, and in the meantime the whole country lies miserably waste, the houses in ruin, and the people without food or clothes, by all which, instead of being discouraged, they are fifty times more violently bent upon prosecuting their schemes, driven equally on by hope and despair. That, as for himself, being not of an enterprising spirit, he was content to go on in the old forms, to live in a house as his ancestors had built, and act as they did, in every part of life, without innovation. That some few other persons of quality and gentry had done the same, but were looked on with an eye of contempt and ill will, as enemies to art, ignorant and ill commonwealth's men, preferring their own ease and sloth before the general improvement of their country. His lordship added, that he would not, by any further particulars, prevent the pleasure I should certainly take in viewing the grand academy, whether he was resolved I should go, HE ONLY DESIRED ME TO OBSERVE A RUINED BUILDING UPON THE SIDE OF A MOUNTAIN ABOUT THREE MILES DISTANT, OF WHICH HE GAVE ME THIS ACCOUNT. THERE HAD BEEN A VERY CONVENIENT MILL WITHIN HALF A MILE OF HIS HOUSE, TURNED BY A CURRENT FROM A LARGE RIVER, AND SUFFICIENT FOR HIS OWN FAMILY, AS WELL AS A GREAT NUMBER OF HIS TENANTS. THAT ABOUT SEVEN YEARS AGO, A CLUB OF THOSE PROJECTORS CAME TO HIM WITH PROPOSALS TO DESTROY THIS MILL. "'and build another on the side of that mountain, "'on the long ridge whereof a long canal must be cut, "'for a repository of water, "'to be conveyed up by pipes and engines to supply the mill, "'because the wind and air upon a height agitated the water, "'and thereby made it fitter for motion, "'and because the water, descending down into clevity, "'would turn the mill with half the current of a river, "'whose course is more upon a level. "'He said,' "'that being then not very well with the court, "'and pressed by many of his friends, "'he complied with the proposal, "'and after employing a hundred men for two years, "'the work miscarried, the projectors went off, "'laying the blame entirely upon him, "'railing at him ever since, "'and putting others upon the same experiment, "'with equal assurance of success, "'as well as equal disappointment. "'In a few days we came back to town,' and His Excellency, considering the bad character he had in the academy, would not go with me himself, but recommended me to a friend of his to bear me company thither. My lord was pleased to represent me as a great admirer of projects, and a person of much curiosity and easy belief, which indeed was not without truth, for I had myself been a sort of projector in my younger days. End of part 3 Chapter 4 Part 3, Chapter 5 of Gulliver's Travels. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Lizzie Driver. Gulliver's Travels by Jonathan Swift. Part 3 A Voyage to Laputa, Balnibarbi, Lugnag, Glubdub Drib, and Japan. CHAPTER Five. THE AUTHOR IS PERMITTED TO SEE THE GRAND ACADEMY OF Legado. THE ACADEMY LARGELY DESCRIBED. THE ARTS WHEREIN THE PROFESSORS EMPLOY THEMSELVES. THIS ACADEMY IS NOT AN ENTIRE SINGLE BUILDING, BUT A CONTINUATION OF SEVERAL HOUSES ON BOTH SIDES OF A STREET, WHICH, GROWING WASTE, WAS PURCHASED AND APPLIED TO THAT USE. I WAS RECEIVED VERY KINDLY BY THE WARDEN, "'and went for many days to the academy. "'Every room has in it one or more projectors, "'and I believe it could not be in fewer than five hundred rooms. "'The first man I saw was of a meagre aspect, "'with sooty hands and face, "'his hair and beard long, ragged, and singed in several places. "'His clothes, shirt, and skin were all of the same colour. "'He had been eight years upon a project "'for extracting sunbeams out of cucumbers.' "'which were to be put in vials, hermetically sealed, "'and let out to warm the air in raw, inclement summers. "'He told me he did not doubt that in eight years more "'he should be able to supply the governor's gardens with sunshine "'at a reasonable rate. "'But he complained that his stock was low, "'and entreated me to give him something as an encouragement to ingenuity, "'especially since this had been a very dear season for cucumbers.' I made him a small present, for my lord had furnished me with money on purpose, because he knew their practice of begging from all who go to see them. I went into another chamber, but was ready to hasten back, being almost overcome with a horrible stink. My conductor pressed me forward, conjuring me in a whisper, to give no offence which would be highly resented, and therefore I durst not so much as stop my nose. The projector of this cell was the most ancient student of the academy. His face and beard were of a pale yellow, his hands and clothes dubbed over with filth. When I was presented to him, he gave me a close embrace, a compliment I could well have excused. His employment, from his first coming into the academy, was an operation to reduce human excrement to its original food, by separating the several parts— removing the tincture which it receives from the gall, making the odour exhale, and scumming off the saliva. He had a weekly allowance from the society of a vessel filled with human orge, about the bigness of a bristol barrel. I saw another at work to calcine ice into gunpowder, who likewise showed me a treatise he had written concerning the malleability of fire, which he intended to publish. There was a most ingenious architect, who had contrived a new method for building houses, by beginning at the roof, and working downwards to the foundation, which he justified to me, by like the practice of those two prudent insects, the bee and the spider. There was a man, born blind, who had several apprentices in his own condition. Their employment was to mix colours for painters, which their master taught them to distinguish by feeling and smelling. It was indeed my misfortune to find them at that time not very perfect in their lessons. And the professor himself happened to be generally mistaken. This artist is much encouraged and esteemed by the whole fraternity. In another apartment I was highly pleased with a projector who had found a device of ploughing the ground with hogs, to save the charges of ploughs, cattle and labour. The method is this. In an acre of ground you bury at least six inches distance and eight deep, a quantity of acorns, dates, chestnuts, and other mast or vegetables, whereof these animals are fondest. Then you drive six hundred or more of them into the field, where, in a few days, they will root up the whole ground in search of their food, and make it fit for sowing, at the same time manuring it with their dung. It is true upon experiment They found the charge and trouble very great, and they had little or no crop. However, it is not doubted that this invention may be capable of great improvement. I went into another room, where the walls and ceiling were all hung round with cobwebs, except a narrow passage for the artist to go in and out. At my entrance he called to me not to disturb his webs. He lamented the fatal mistake the world had been so long in, of using silk-worms, while we had such plenty of domestic insects who infinitely excelled the former, because they understood how to weave as well as spin. And he proposed further that by employing spiders the charge of dyeing silk should be wholly saved, whereof I was fully convinced, when he showed me a vast number of flies most beautifully covered, wherewith he fed his spiders, assuring us— that the webs would take a tincture from them, and as he had them of all hues, he hoped to fit everybody's fancy, as soon as he could find proper food for the flies, of certain gums, oils, and other glutinous matter, to give a strength and consistence to the threads. There was an astronomer who had undertaken to place a sun-dial upon the great weathercock on the town-house. By adjusting the annual and diurnal motions of the earth and sun, "'so as to answer and coincide "'with all accidental turnings of the wind. "'I was complaining of a small fit of the colic, "'upon which my conductor led me into a room "'where a great physician resided, "'who was famous for curing that disease "'by contrary operations from the same instrument. "'He had a large pair of bellows, "'with a long slender muzzle of ivory. "'This he conveyed eight inches up the anus, and drawing in the wind, he affirmed he could make the guts as lank as a dried bladder. But, when the disease was more stubborn and violent, he let in the muzzle while the bellows were full of wind, which he discharged into the body of the patient, then withdrew the instrument to replenish it, clapping his thumb strongly against the orifice of then fundament, and this being repeated three or four times. The adventitious wind would rush out, bringing the noxious along with it, like water put into a pump, and the patient recovered. I saw him try both experiments upon a dog, but could not discern any effect from the former. After the latter, the animal was ready to burst, and made so violent a discharge as was very offensive to me and my companion. The dog died on the spot, and we left the doctor endeavouring to recover him by the same operation. I visited many other apartments, but shall not trouble my reader with all the curiosities I observed, being studious of brevity. I had hitherto seen only one side of the academy, the other being appropriated to the advances of speculative learning, of whom I shall say something, when I have mentioned one illustrious person more, who is called among them the universal artist. He told us, he had been thirty years employing his thoughts for the improvement of human life. He had two large rooms full of wonderful curiosities, and fifty men at work. Some were condensing air into a dry, tangible substance, by extracting the nature, and letting the aqueous or fluid particles percolate, others softening marble for pillows and pincushions, others petrifying the hoofs of a living horse, to preserve them from foundering. The artist himself was at that time busy upon two great designs, the first to sow land with chaff, wherein he affirmed the true seminal virtue to be contained, as he demonstrated by several experiments, which I was not skilful enough to comprehend. The other was, by a certain composition of gums, minerals, and vegetables, outwardly applied to prevent the growth of wool upon two young lambs, and he hoped in a reasonable time to propagate the breed of naked sheep all over the kingdom. We crossed a walk to the other part of the academy, where, as I have already said, the projectors in speculative learning resided. The first professor I saw was in a very large room, with forty pupils about him. After salutation, observing me to look earnestly upon a frame which took up the greatest part of both the length and breadth of the room, he said. Perhaps I might wonder to see him employed in a project for improving speculative knowledge by practical and mechanical operations. But the world would soon be sensible of its usefulness, and he flattered himself that a more noble, exalted thought never sprang in any other man's head. Everyone knew how laborious the usual method is of attaining to arts and sciences, whereas, by his contrivance, the most ignorant person— at a reasonable charge, and with a little bodily labour, might tried books in philosophy, poetry, politics, laws, mathematics, and theology, without the least assistance from genius or study. He then led me to the frame, about the sides, whereof all his pupils stood in ranks. It was twenty feet square, placed in the middle of the room. The superficies was composed of several bits of wood, about the bigness of a die, but some larger than others. They were all linked together by slender wires. These bits of wood were covered on every square, with paper pasted on them, and on these papers were written all the words of their language, in their several moods, tenses, and declensions, but without any order. The professor then desired me to observe, for he was going to set his engine at work. THE PUPILS AT HIS COMMAND TOOK EACH OF THEM HOLD OF AN IRON HANDLE, WHEREOF THERE WERE FORTY FIXED ROUND THE EDGES OF THE FRAME, AND GIVING THEM A SUDDEN TURN, THE HOLDER'S POSITION OF THE WORDS WAS ENTIRELY CHANGED. HE THEN COMMANDED SIX AND THIRTY OF THE LADS TO READ THE SEVERAL LINES SOFTLY AS THEY APPEARED ON THE FRAME, AND WHERE THEY FOUND THREE OR FOUR WORDS TOGETHER THAT MIGHT MAKE PART OF A SENTENCE they dictated to the four remaining boys who were scribes this work was repeated three or four times and at every turn the engine was so contrived that the words shifted into new places as the square bits of wood moved upside down six hours a day the young students were employed in this labor and the professor showed me several volumes in large folio already collected of broken sentences which he intended to piece together, and out of those rich materials, to give the world a complete body of all arts and sciences, which, however, might be still improved, and much expediated, if the public would raise a fund for making and employing five hundred such frames in Lagado, and oblige the managers to contribute in common their several collections. He assured me that this invention had employed all his thoughts from his youth, and that he emptied the whole vocabulary into his frame, and made the strictest computation of the general proportion there is in books between the numbers of particles, nouns, and verbs, and other parts of speech. I made my humblest acknowledgment to this illustrious person, for his great communicativeness, and promised, if ever I had the good fortune to return to my native country, that I would do him justice, as the sole inventor of this wonderful machine, the form and contrivance of which I desired to delineate on paper, as in the figure here annexed. I told him, although it were the custom of our learned in Europe to steal inventions from each other, who had thereby at least this advantage, that it became a controversy which was the right owner. Yet I would take such caution that he should have the honour entire without a rival." We next went to the School of Languages, where three professors sat in consultation upon improving that of their own country. The first project was to shorten discourse, by cutting polysyllables into one, and leaving out verbs and participles, because, in reality, all things imaginable are but norms. The other project was a scheme for entirely abolishing all words whatsoever and was urged as a great advantage in point of health as well as brevity. For it is plain that every word we speak is, in some degree, a diminution of our lunge by corrosion, and, consequently, contributes to the shortening of our lives. An expedient was therefore offered, that since words are only names for things, it would be more convenient for all men to carry about them such things as were necessary to express a particular business they are to discourse on. And this invention would certainly have taken place, to the great ease as well as health of the subject, if the women, in conjunction with the vulgar and illiterate, had not threatened to raise a rebellion, unless they might be allowed the liberty to speak with their tongues, after the manner of their forefathers. Such constant, irreconcilable enemies to science are the common people." However, many of the most learned and wise adhere to the new scheme of expressing themselves by things, which is only this inconvenience attending it, that if a man's business be very great, and of various kinds, he must be obliged, in proportion, to carry a greater bundle of things upon his back, unless he can afford one or two strong servants to attend him. I have often beheld two of those sages almost sinking under the weight of their packs, like peddlers among us, who, when they meet in the street, would lay down their loads, open their sacks, and hold conversation for an hour together, then put up their implements, help each other to resume their burdens, and take their leave. But for short conversations, a man may carry implements in his pockets, and under his arms, enough to supply him. And in his house he cannot be at a loss, therefore the room where company meet who practise this art is full of all things ready at hand requisite to furnish matter for this kind of artificial converse another great advantage proposed by this invention was that it would serve as a universal language to be understood in all civilized nations whose goods and utensils are generally of the same kind or nearly resembling so that their uses might easily be comprehended. And thus ambassadors would be qualified to treat with foreign princes, or ministers of state, to whose tongues they were utter strangers. I was at the mathematical school, where the master taught his pupils after the method scarce imaginable to us in Europe. The proposition and demonstration were fairly written on a thin wafer, with ink composed of a cephalic tincture, this the student was to swallow upon a fasting stomach, and for three days following eat nothing but bread and water. As the wafer digested, the tincture mounted to his brain, bearing the proposition along with it. But the success has not hitherto been answerable, partly by some error in the quantum or composition, and partly by the perverseness of lads, to whom this bolus is so nauseous. That they generally steal aside and discharge it upwards before it can operate. Neither have they yet been persuaded to use so long an abstinence as the prescription requires. End of part three, chapter five.
0: Say goodbye